We are in Matthew chapter 22. It certainly feels like Matthew is all of a sudden just starting to rush by. I got curious this week and I went and, and looked. The, our, my first sermon in Matthew uh, was December 1st, 2019. I'm preaching 15 verses this morning, 14 verses this morning. I mean, that's, you know, that's not a little chunk. But um, this parable that, that begins chapter 22, we know, of course, that chapter and verse divisions are not part of the original text. It's really the close of uh, a somewhat lengthy passage that begins in chapter 21, verse 23, where Jesus deals with the chief priests and the elders of the people, the Pharisees. They came to him there and they, they challenged his authority. By what authority are you doing these things? And where did you get the, this authority from? He asked them where John the Baptist got his authority. And they refused to answer. They didn't refuse to answer because they didn't know what they thought. They did know what they thought. They didn't believe that John was sent by God. Jesus reveals that. But they refused to answer. They were going to be careful. They were going to be, to be really honest, I'll preach here a little bit. To be really honest, they were a lot of, lot of people, like a lot of people in our time today, who answer in a careful way. Let's think about how we put this. Let's not just answer the question. Let's, let's ponder how the answer will be received. Don't ponder how the answer will be received. Just answer. Just say what you think. And think the truth, by the way. Do that, but say what you think. Well, so Jesus, they're, they're challenging his authority. Jesus immediately puts his authority to use, and he, he begins a prosecution of these men through three parables. The first parable is, is very short. It's about the two sons, and he reveals there that their claims of faithfulness, their claims of obedience are just lies. Obedience is not about what you say, it's about what you do. In the second parable, he exposes this insane desire that they have to steal the kingdom of God, to steal his inheritance as the son of God. And there then he reveals the judgment of God against them. In this third parable, he reveals that he himself is at the very center of God's purposes. And that what somebody thinks about him and does with him determines their eternity. Here's the parable. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been called to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been called, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. 
and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were called were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, call to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. There's, there's the parable. So let's, let's talk about it. This is a parable about the glory of the son of God. The father glorifies his son. He has glorified his son by naming him Savior and Judge. The Holy Spirit glorifies the son by making Jesus the focus of all scripture. And by granting the elect faith in Christ for salvation. In John chapter 5 Verses 22 to 24, Jesus speaks as both judge and savior. You can hear this. He says, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son, (coughs) even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. That's Jesus speaking as judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. That's Jesus speaking as Savior. Jesus Christ is worthy of all glory. All glory. The king in the parable demands that all honor his son. So how much more does God the Father require that all mankind exalt and worship and honor his son? It's not a call to Christians. It's a call to all humanity. The word of God is filled with declarations and pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. In the Old Testament, those declarations are primarily in the form of prophecies and pictures and shadows. In the New Testament, they come from the lips of Jesus himself and the writings of his apostles. Simply reading the statements in scripture that concern Jesus would take far more time than we have here. Exploring them would require years of preaching. In fact, I've spent the last 30 years of my life exploring the glories of Jesus Christ. The Bible is his story. So I want you to listen to just one passage. I'm going to read Colossians 1, 15 to 20 to you, those six verses. <laughs> See if you can keep a mental tally of how many different things are said about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. I count 14 distinct statements about Jesus there. You might have heard more, you might have heard fewer. My point is that Every one of them would require multiple sermons to understand and to explore. Each one of them by itself is sufficient to glorify him and to worship him, to exalt his name, to lift up his name with the words that are being cried out in heaven right now. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's what Revelation 5 says is going on in the heavenly places as everyone there worships God the Father and Jesus the Lamb. The Father glorifies the Son. The Spirit glorifies the Son. All creation is commanded to exalt his name and to lift him up. You'll notice maybe that the bride is never mentioned in the parable. A king gave a wedding feast for his son. Why isn't the bride mentioned? Because this is a parable of Christ. And we, the church, the bride of Christ, have no glory to celebrate. It's not about us. It's about him. In fact, all humanity who comes in faith and worships him is the bride. We see in the parable that that the originally invited guests rebelled. They refused to come. They were unwilling to come. They paid no attention. They went on their own way. They even mistreated his slaves and killed them. In the history of Israel, from Moses to Christ, there's not a single generation that welcomed the prophets of God. Not one. Yahweh and Israel had made a covenant together in the the wilderness. This is what Israel promised to do. Exodus 24, 7. All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. That generation couldn't be obedient, much less speak for the generations to come. Hundreds of years later, God said through Isaiah about Israel, this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who are not willing to listen to the law of Yahweh, who say to seers, you must not see. And who say to those who have visions, you must not have visions of what is right. Speak to us pleasant things stop speaking to us about the holy one of israel those were the chosen people a kingdom of priests in utter rebellion well over the years over the centuries god sent his prophets with good news it's hard to see the good news sometimes because the people were in such rebellion. But the good news of virtually all of those prophets, there, there might be one or two exceptions, but the good news of virtually all of those prophets is there is forgiveness. There is restoration. 
We heard as Dakota read this morning in Amos 7, God says to Amos, Amos, I'm going to do this. And Amos says, don't do that. They, they won't survive if you do that. And God says, okay, I won't do that. I'll do this instead. No, don't do that. They won't survive. I don't know if you heard what was going on there, but God has made Amos a type of Christ. He's raised him up as a mediator to, to intercede for the people. But God nevertheless says, I've got a plumb line. I've got my truth. And I'm just going to compare them to that plumb line. And I'm going to remove anything and anyone that is not in line with that plumb line. When the Lord spoke to Moses and on Mount Sinai, he introduced himself this way. Yahweh passed in front of Moses and called out Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. This is right about the time they're making a golden calf. These are important words. And these are the, the words that the, the prophets kept calling the people of Israel back to over and over again. They went and proclaimed the law of God and called them to respond to the hope of forgiveness that God had promised. But instead of rejoicing that forgiveness was theirs for the asking, the people of Israel repeatedly responded as though the prophets were insulting them. It's an insult to be offered forgiveness. And they treated the prophets of God as their enemies. The first Christian martyr was a man named Stephen. He was a Jew. He told the high priest and, and the other leaders what they already knew to be true. This is in, in Acts chapter 7. He says, you men stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And which one of the prophets did your fathers not kill? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels but did not observe. They were saying, we have the law of God. We have the oracles of God. It was given to us by angels. Choirs of angels sang when it came. Are you going to obey it? Well, no, we're not going to obey it. We're just going to rejoice in it. So it's no surprise that they fell upon Stephen moments later and murdered him as they'd murdered the prophets, as they'd murdered Christ. So the king in the parable sends out his armies to destroy those who dishonored the son and murdered his slaves. Which leads to a question, how long should God endure the hatred and rebellion of mankind, whether Jew or Gentile? Uh, a few moments ago, I read Exodus 34, 6 and 7, but I didn't read all of it. Let me read all of it this time. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for countless numbers. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But what should he do when people refuse to repent? What should he do when the people to which he offers compassion and graciousness and mercy and loving kindness slap his hands back and treat him as an enemy? Well, Scripture tells us he he responds with wrath. The king in the parable sends his armies to kill his enemies. Judgment came upon Israel for the rejection of Christ. Just a couple of more chapters in Matthew, Jesus is going to say, tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away before these things happen. Speaking of some of the fulfillments that took place in 70 AD. Why didn't Jesus bring immediate judgment, you ask? Good question. Because he had a church to be born And that church was incubated in Jerusalem for perhaps a decade before finally persecution shoved them out in mass to the nations. And within a generation, with Peter dead, with the rest of the apostles dead, Jerusalem had run its course. It had fulfilled its final purpose. And it was laid low by the Romans. There's more to the wrath of God than temporary consequences. There's a day of judgment coming. And there's only one way to escape it, and that's through the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, having destroyed those who despised his son, the king in the parable offers a seat at the table to those out on the highways. He sends his slaves out. Go out into the streets, go to the main highways, gather as many as you find there, call call them to the wedding feast. They went out in the streets and they gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall is filled with dinner guests. And then the king comes in to see who's who's here, who's responded. These are not the people he'd invited first. His guest list is no, no longer applicable. So he comes to see who's there. And he sees a man sitting there who's not dressed in wedding clothes. He's just dressed dressed in normal clothes, daily clothes, street clothes. The king confronts him. How did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man is speechless. And the king says to his servants, this is the shocking turn that we sometimes find in Jesus' parables. This is the shocking thing. The king says, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's, it's though at the end of the parable, Jesus begins to erase the line between parable and reality. And now this is a picture of final judgment, a place of outer darkness, of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. We need to understand two things about the kingdom. And and we'll do this by means of two questions. First question is what gives anyone the right to be there? And the second question is why why is anybody there in the first place? So the first question, what what gives anybody the right to be in the kingdom? Well, what gave the guests the right to be at the wedding feast? It wasn't because of their good character or their good works. 
How do we know? Because the slaves gathered all together, they gathered all they found, both evil and good. So you you have members of Congress sitting next to stay-at-home moms. You have gang members sitting next to hairdressers. You've got the evil and the good gathered together. Nobody is there because they're good. Nobody. Good and evil are words that matter out there. They don't have any meaning within the kingdom. Nobody is in the kingdom of God because we were good. If you have a place at the table today, it's because God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeping loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. All praise to his name, glorify his name. That's why there is a seat at the table for anyone. It's not because of us. And that's good news, by the way. If you were worthy of a seat at the table, you could become unworthy of the seat at the table. The second question was, why were those guests invited? Why were they there in the first place? It wasn't to get a free meal. It wasn't to get a free meal. It wasn't to fill themselves up and stuff their faces. It was to honor the king and the son. The slaves are sent out to bring in all who will come to honor the son. Not for a party. And that's why the man who is not dressed in wedding clothes suffers such an extreme fate. He's simply got no respect for the son. He's got no more respect for the son than those who were unwilling to come. He says, this whole event is being thrown for the glory of the son, that the son of the king may be honored. But I don't care about that. All I care about is that I can get a free meal and hit the open bar. Uh, Years ago, there was a movie called The Wedding Crashers. I've never seen it. My understanding is that it's pretty horrific, but I kind of wondered, is that kind of a thing real? So I looked it up. Well, lo and behold, uh, just as an example, a couple of women in Texas were arrested several years ago. They had, it was discovered that they were crashing weddings. You go to a wedding of two, 300 people, 400 people, you're friends of one side, but not the other side. And maybe you don't know everybody on the one side all that well. So it's a great place to hide. Most weddings, there's a table where people bring gifts. And there's often a basket where people draw, drop checks and cash. And they were simply going to eat and then steal. It was a photographer who began noticing some patterns of some of this behavior. And he asked both mothers and they didn't know him and they confronted them and they were finally arrested. So this is the kind of thing that happens in our world. People invade for the wrong reasons. Why is anybody at the table in the kingdom of God to glorify the son of God, to give him praise, to give him honor. That's why we're there. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is a a long hymn of praise. It's a single sentence in the original language. Let me summarize it for you this way. God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, chosen us in Christ, and predestined us to adoption to himself as sons to the praise of the glory of his grace. 
Jesus, the son, has redeemed us through his blood, forgiven us our sins, revealed his grace to us, shown us his eternal plan, and made us his own inheritance to the praise of his glory. God, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of promise, is a down payment of our inheritance, and he has sealed us in Christ as God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Nobody is there for the party. Nobody is there because God says, I want you to have a great tomorrow. We are there to glorify the Son of God, and through him, the Father, and therefore the Spirit. Why are we there? To honor him. Now, it's, it's true that God is delighted to pour out blessings on those who love him and trust him. It's absolutely true. It's true that he has prepared an eternity for us that no one has seen or heard of or can begin to imagine. That's true. It's true that crowns await us for our faithfulness and our service. It's true that we will receive an eternal weight of glory that makes any momentary light affliction of this life pale in comparison. But none of that changes the fact that the kingdom is all about the glory of the sun. That's what this parable is about. Let's bring this home. Are you at the table of the king? If you are, it's because you were chosen. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit acted together in perfect agreement and harmony to bring you in from the highway and to seat you at his table. Jesus says many are called, but few are chosen. I'll tell you, it'd be much more convenient theologically if he would have said, many are called, but few are worthy. Many are called, but few are acceptable. We like that because we have control over worthy. We have control over acceptable. We have no control over chosen. But see, nobody is at the table of Christ because they are worthy. Nobody is at the table of Christ because they are acceptable. Those gathered at the table of Christ come from the human spectrum of evil to good. You could just draw a line from good to evil. You could mark off what that means. And you'll find people in the kingdom over the last 2,000 years who fill every, every single spot. Someone in here is thinking about the guy at the end of the parable. Almost certainly. There's enough people here. The one who wasn't dressed in wedding clothes. The one who had a tap on his shoulder and heard the king say, how did you get in here? Who is hogtied and then thrown out into eternal judgment. And somebody in here is thinking that maybe they should be living in anxiety. Maybe I should be afraid. Maybe I shouldn't be sure. When Jesus' words make it clear that this guy was not chosen to be there in the first place. He simply came in. He had no business being there. He was a wedding crasher. The truth is that this happened. Several years ago, a, a man visited our church in Norfolk. We were, we were meeting at the museum at the time. He came in after we had started. He, he sat in the back, and eventually I went to the piano, and I'm, I'm leading worship, and I'm watching him. And I see him move around a little bit, and then I see him sit down next to a person, and he leans over and he begins whispering to that person, and then he starts touching their arm. 
I was about ready to leap over the piano. And somebody got up and approached him and spoke to him, and after a minute or two, he left. He had no business being there. He, he was there to indulge something, and I don't even want to think about what he wanted to indulge. But he had no business being there. So how do I know if I'm chosen or not? How do I know if I'm in Christ by faith? Now, Charles Stanley just passed away. If you're familiar with him, I'll just use a Charles Stanley-ism. Listen. If you've listened to him on the radio, he'd say, you might be saying to yourself this, but listen. So listen. Assurance is a matter of spiritual maturity. Assurance of salvation is not automatic. The person who says, I know I'm a Christian because 25 years ago I went forward, that's not assurance. That's assumption. And it's presumption. John's little letter of 1 John, five chapters, presents 11 tests of spiritual maturity. And those spiritual aspects of spiritual maturity, he says at the end of the book, add up to assurance. He doesn't say, if you fail these things, you're not a Christian. He says, if you fail these things, you're not mature yet. Here's the 11. Mature Christians enjoy fellowship with the Lord and his people. They hate their sin. They long to obey the word of God. They reject the world. They long for Christ's return. They're growing in holiness. They love those who love Jesus. They rejoice in God's answers to prayer. They are led by the Spirit. They recognize true doctrine and false teaching, and they keep the world's, They accept the world's hatred for the sake of Christ. Read 1 John, and you'll see those elements. And John says then at the very end, these things I have written to you who believe, so that you may know. So if, if you're a believer, but you're just not sure, you just don't have peace about it, you don't have assurance of it, and you put your faith in Christ, there can only be two possibilities. One is that you're not a Christian. And the other is that you are, but you're immature. immature. And what you do at that point becomes crucial. Because if, if you think, well, okay, I'm not mature in Christ, I don't have assurance, I'll never have assurance, and you just shrug your shoulders like it doesn't matter, that's frightening. None of us will be fully mature in Christ before we die. We'll be completed by God the Father. At the moment that we all sit down together at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will be fully like his son. But not until then. But the person who says, I don't care if I have assurance or not. I don't care if I have peace or not. It's not that big a deal. I would be afraid for your soul. I would think if you don't care, that probably means you're not saved. If you are saved and you say, but what do I do? You can, you can do this. You can go to the Lord According to Philippians 2, 13 and 14, or 12, I'm sorry, 2, 12 and 13, where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not work for it, but work it out, live your salvation, make it daily, not weekly, don't 
require, don't, don't, don't rely on a, a spiritual life that's expressed in 90 minutes on Sunday morning. Don't do that. How healthy would you be if you ate a meal one day a week? That's not a way for health. That's not a way for strength. You can, you can certainly join us Sunday evenings at 6. We're usually here now. We're getting into the habit of being here. But even that would just be two times a week. We need to be in the Word daily. You can listen to this message. It'll be, uh, it, it's actually being live streamed now. Hi, Donna. It's actually being live streamed now. And later this afternoon, I'll simply say, here's the message and save and it'll, it'll be available. There's all kinds of good teachers you can be listening to. There's all kinds of good teachers you can be listening to. You should be opening up your Bible. You should be shutting off the world more. We could all do that and do better. That's all legalism. No, it's not. It's the source of assurance. It's the source of peace. It's the source of joy. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free so that we can sit at his table and rejoice in him and exalt his name. My prayer is that you'd have a comfortable seat and that you would be looking for others to join us. Father, we thank you for your love for us and for your kindness to us. We thank you for what Jesus accomplished for us. He didn't come to simply be an example for us, but to accomplish things for us. He lived in our name. He died in our name. In his death, he bore our sins and your wrath and satisfied your wrath and took away our sins. And in his life, he proved himself to be perfectly righteous as we trust him, he dresses us in his righteousness so that we never need to fear anyone tapping us on the shoulder in your kingdom and telling us that we are out of place. I lift up each one here and I ask that you would remind us of these words this week, that the good seed of your word would bear good fruit for us. And most of all, Lord, that we would be lifting our eyes and our hearts and our minds to you and exalting Jesus Christ every way we can. I thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.